Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. Can you believe we are only three months away from CanMed 2022? I, for one, cannot wait for CanMed 2022, but when you consider it's been 28 months since our last event, I guess three months isn't that long to wait. But that doesn't mean you should wait to buy your ticket to the event. No, head over to canmedevents.com now and get your tickets today. We have three full days of world-class cannabis educational content scheduled for May 3rd through 5th at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. It all starts on May 3rd with our full-day medical practicum led by Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, Dr. Dustin Sulak, Dr. Kevin Spellman, and Eloise Thiessen. Each of them will share the latest medical cannabis research, including information on dosing, drug interactions, and different product types. They will also share their clinical experience they have acquired treating patients with medical cannabis over the years. This is really a must-attend event for any healthcare professionals who are interested in recommending medical cannabis, but it's not limited to those folks. Anyone who is interested in learning about medical cannabis can and should join us for this event. Head over to canmedevents.com practicum to learn more. As wonderful as that practicum is, it's just the appetizer. May 4th and 5th is the main course. Two full days of oral presentations, panel discussions, poster presentations, and industry exhibitors covering the latest advancements in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. We are really excited about this year's program. It might be our best yet. Just look at our keynote presenters. We have Dr. Ethan Russo presenting cannabis and psychiatry, Dr. Seth Crawford talking about innovations in hemp breeding, Grace Bandong will talk about building a comprehensive analytical testing program, and Dr. Bonnie Goldstein will discuss cannabis medicine for children. Those presentations alone are worth the price of admission, but please go to canmedevents.com to see the full schedule. And if you want a preview of what you can expect at CanMed 2022, check out our CanMed archive, which is a searchable video library of all the past CanMed presentations and panels. Find that at canmedevents.com. Which brings us to this episode's guest, Dr. Ethan Rousseau. As you just heard, Ethan is a CanMed 2022 keynote presenter, and Ethan is no stranger to CanMed. He was an attendee at our early events at Harvard Medical School, as well as a presenter at CanMed 2018 at UCLA. He is one of the most experienced cannabis researchers in the game. Ethan is a board-certified neurologist, a psychopharmacology researcher, an author, a lecturer, a consultant, the man does it all. And today, he joins us to talk about the research that has been done to determine whether cannabis can be used to treat COVID-19 and or prevent infection. More specifically, we discuss what role the endocannabinoid system plays in preventing and clearing a viral infection, the different levels of clinical research, the importance of peer review, and we also talk about some specific studies, most notably 
The University of Chicago study that claims CBD inhibits SARS-CoV-2 replication. The Oregon University study that claims cannabinoid acids can prevent COVID infection. Animal models showing CBD can calm the cytokine storm. A preprint study claiming CBD primes the innate immune system. And we also look at claims that cannabis smokers have a greater risk of COVID-19 infection. Before we get to my conversation with Ethan, I'd want to thank this episode's sponsor, Project CBD. Founded in 2010, Project CBD is the first and longest-running website dedicated to research and education on the benefits of CBD, and it's the premier destination for both curious and committed CBD consumers. Often the first to report on cutting-edge health issues, Project CBD's reporting reflects a deeper understanding of developments in cannabinoid science and therapeutics. Learn more at projectcbd.com. And without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ethan Russo. Good morning, Ethan. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. So... Throughout the pandemic, we've seen headlines about cannabis as a potential treatment for COVID-19. But as is the case with most things these days, it's hard to know what's real and what's being sensationalized for clicks. So first, thank you for coming on to be a trusted expert that uh, can help us find the signal and all the noise. Well, we'll try. Um, you know, I <laughs> a lot of this by saying that there's a big difference between the the way I would like things and the way that I think that they are. Uh, so let's issue that caveat. And this is where I remind people that my training is as a neurologist, not a virologist, but um, hopefully we can translate some of the uh, scientific jargon into things that are understandable. Great. So maybe it's best to start broadly. Um, and then we can kind of get into discussing some of these specific studies and, and see which ones have the most promise. So first, given what we know about cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system, is there potential for cannabis medicine to be helpful in the fight against COVID-19? Perhaps. There, always, uh, there is always more than one consideration here. Um, first would be, uh, are there medicines that uh, help prevent infection uh, or kill the virus? Or in the case of COVID, are there things that help with the aftermath or preventing further damage? People are probably familiar at this point with the idea of the cytokine storm. This may have less to do with the virus itself than it does with the body's overreaction to its presence such that it's attacking its own tissues, particularly the lungs. Um, so all of these are branch points where any medical intervention might help. And so the question then becomes, could cannabis or components help here, here, or here? Uh, so all of these things need to be considered. Excellent. And another thing to consider, at least when we're kind of looking at the research that's being put out, is sort of the different levels of clinical research 
And I was hoping you could kind of help explain that again to kind of set the table, because from what I can gather, a lot of the work that's been done on cannabis and COVID is very preliminary, which means that the results that are seen there might not hold up when we start working with actual patients. Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, the first step is looking at things in the lab, uh, maybe at cells and culture. And sometimes they do things like use HEK cells, which stands for human embryonic kidney. Um, Those are used because they're easy to hook on cell receptors to, so that you can test a hypothesis. However, it's a long way from that to saying that something's going to work in the human body. So the next echelon up is animal studies. But again, do these translate well? And as we'll we'll see, sometimes they're injecting very large doses uh, into a rodent, uh, and it's not the same as what can be achieved in a human. Um, Third, and most important, would be human clinical trials. Um, And typically, these go through three phases. Uh, Phase one is only possible after you've established to the satisfaction of the Food and Drug Administration that the compound you're testing is safe and not toxic uh, to a degree that is going to be dangerous by itself. After that step's passed, phase one means that you test your drug in normal patients uh, or normal participants uh, to see what its pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics are. That's a fancy way of saying how much gets into the blood and what kind of reactions do people get to it. Um, Then phase two, you're actually studying the disease process and how people are affected by it. So these are called safety and efficacy studies. Along the way, you also have to go through chemistry, manufacturing, and control to show that your uh, study drug is consistent over time and is made to uh, what are called good manufacturing practice standards. Finally, phase three is in large numbers of people, again, looking at safety and efficacy. Uh, If you pass all that, um, you get FDA approval, but this is a process that often takes 10 to 12 years um, and upwards of a billion dollars. Now, with a natural product, there's the possibility of it doing in less time. Case in point would be Epidiolex, but there again, we were dealing with decades of information regarding the relative safety of cannabidiol. in humans, uh, and then getting it through clinical trials for a very uh, important set of disorders uh, where basically conventional medicine has fallen short. Um, so, you know, it was also under what's called an orphan designation, meaning that less than 250,000 people in the US were affected. So that's a shortcut. With COVID, you wouldn't necessarily have that shortcut. But you may have other shortcuts because of the uh, severity and wide reach of the pandemic. Uh, anyway, that's a long-winded answer to what was a short question. Yeah, and f- at least from what I gather in, in the studies that I sort of put together for this conversation, I didn't see anything getting beyond animal models. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, 
there was on the Nguyen study that I just read yesterday. This is called Can Cannabidiol Inhibits SARS-CoV-2 Replication Through Induction of the Host ER Stress and Innate Immune Responses. They did look at humans, but in a very indirect way. We could go into that in detail if you like right now. Yeah, sure. Okay, so what they did, um, and this is a little bit hazy because in the methodology section, they didn't go into this in a lot of detail, but purportedly they looked at people who were on a high potency cannabidiol preparation, which I assume was epidiolex. Uh, because they described it, and it's the only one I know of, uh, basically 100 milligram CBD per milliliter in patients. So this must be epidiolex. Um, and they looked at the incidence of uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, in patients on that preparation compared to patients who were not on it. And supposedly, um, they were comparable in demographics, but there weren't a lot of detail there. Now, why is this important? Well, first, who gets epidiolex? It is approved in three groups of patients, those with Dravet syndrome, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, and uh, seizure disorders associated with tuberous sclerosis. These are all generally children, sometimes adults, uh, with extremely severe seizure disorder syndromes and developmental delays. Um, one would have to think that in the era of COVID, that these are patients that are really being sequestered uh, by their family. They're not going to be out and about, and they're not going to be eating in restaurants unmasked or this kind of thing. So could the uh, was there a benefit to them being on this high potency cannabidiol preparation or was it more that they've been isolated uh, and were getting less infection so this is something you cannot answer uh, from the available evidence now there were statistically significant differences i think it's intriguing but it is very preliminary i hope it's true uh, but let's keep this in context. Let's suppose it is true. The concentration is very high, um, and the doses required uh, would be very high. Um, extrapolating from the studies they did in rodents, um, this could be anywhere from 113 milligrams of cannabidiol a day up to 450 milligrams. Um, in the patient's where they're actually describing use and reduce COVID uh, incidents, um, generally the dosing on that is 15 milligrams per kilogram per day of cannabidiol. So in an adult, this is going to be upwards of 1,500 milligrams or 2,000 milligrams a day. Um, that, even if available, is going to be prohibitively expensive. Right. The projected average cost per patient of epidiolex in the U.S. is $32,500 a year. And if we're talking about something that's given as a preventive, not as a treatment at the time, that's an enormous cost uh, that you could not bear uh, across a large population. I mean, that would absolutely bankrupt the system. We have enough drugs that are bankrupting the system right now. So, uh, again... Interesting is what I'd say. Uh, the answer, absolutely not and not yet. Um, so we need a lot more work.
um, to see if uh, there's something there. Um, yeah, I hope it's true, but again, um, we have to throw some cold water uh, on this as uh, being anything more than a little bit intriguing at this point. Right. And so this was looking at it um, using CBD as a preventative. Do I have that right? Primar primarily. Um, you know, there would be a role for treatment. Um, they showed um, that uh, cannabidiol, at least in the animals, um, could uh, decrease replication uh, and inhibit viral gene expression, uh, et cetera. And um, yeah, th this may be really helpful. Um, again, I, I hope it's the case. But, you know, the animal studies they did also were done by doing intraperitoneal injections. So in other words, they lift the skin of the abdomen and inject this, and it goes around the gut. Um, so that's a highly vascular system, and it absorbs relatively well. There's a big difference between that and saying that an oral dose in humans is mm. going to be absorbed to a sufficient degree to come anywhere near close to the tissue concentrations that were achieved in the animals. Um, similarly, in one of the other studies, uh, one that's been out longer and gotten a lot more play, this is the Van Bremen study about cannabinoids blocking entry. Of is that the one out of Oregon? Yes, it is. Yeah. Now, there it's different. It wasn't CBD. It was cannabidiolic acid, CBDA, and CBGA. Um, uh, now, here, uh, the problem is an even greater one. And, uh, you know, I, I think, again, this is a very interesting study. There was good science involved, but I fault this one. Uh, the way it was reported, I fault that to lack of adequate peer review. Now, what does that mean? To be published in a peer-reviewed journal, it means it's got to go through a panel of experts um, who critique the article and suggest changes or corrections. And I think that that fell down somewhere along the way. So, for example, with CBGA, cannabidiolic acid, um, they described uh, an uh, inhibitory concentration of um, uh, 35 micrograms per milliliter. Um, now, the problem is that's not the way that we usually report things. It's done in what's termed a tissue concentration. Um, now, converting that, uh, we get a calculation of 97 to 102 micromolar for CBGA. Micromolar means millions of a mole. Uh, mole is the molecular weight in grams per, per liter. Um, so uh, what this means is uh, that a, a tremendous concentration uh, is needed. Generally, anything above 10 micromolar is considered non-druggable. Non-druggable is a term of the industry, meaning whether you can turn it into a pharmaceutical or not. And um, people who have experience in this area will tell you that I think it's totally impractical that you could create these kinds of tissue concentrations uh, by giving this orally uh, to someone. 
Um, it's true that the cannabinoid acids have sometimes been shown to have a greater bioavailability, ability to get absorbed and into the body uh, than the neutral cannabinoids, but I don't think this is achievable. Uh, again, it's possible you could do this on a surface, mm -hmm. um, like spraying it on the virus, but, uh, you yeah. know, to be fair, Expensive. you can spray 70% ethanol uh, or rubbing alcohol in that concentration on the virus and you'll kill it because it, it's what's called an envelope virus. If you knock out the envelope, the virus can't work. Um, you know, and uh, this has led to the kind of misconceptions like with President Trump um, at the time recommending uh, people ingest bleach uh, to kill the virus. No, 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 not quite. You do not understand the science. Um, so um, in the article, and this, this is again where I fault the, what I think is a lack of uh, peer review, they felt that these kinds of concentrations would be clinically achievable. I dissent. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and again, I've, I've talked to many of my colleagues about this, and we're in agreement that this is just uh, not practical at all. So it's not even the fact that it would be cost prohibitive. It's just that it's just not achievable. Is that right? That's, that's what I believe. And again, not what I'd like. I'd love for this to be true. Now, there could be an ace in the hole here. They got a good response with both CBDA and CBGA. Mm. What happens with the two of them together? They didn't test that. If there were some kind of synergy, a boosting of effect, of the two together, which often we see with botanical mixtures, maybe they could get it into a range where it's more meaningful. But right now, it's not even close. Um, you know, again, um, uh, numbers that high, you just don't see in a drug that goes to market. It just doesn't happen. And so, so we know that cannabinoids are... Um, or phytocannabinoids are, are plant compounds that mimic our endocannabinoids that our body makes ourselves. So is there some takeaway here or some application here where, you know, there's something to boost our, our own endocannabinoid production that can help, you know, prevent an, inf an infection? Right. All right. Well, let's take a little bit of leap of faith here. Um, let's say that uh, there's some signal here that indicates that cannabidiol can influence the cytokine storms um, and sure. Um, sure. could reduce damage associated with uh, the virus. Well, uh, you know, that, that's really possible. Again, I don't think that that's been demonstrated. Uh, this would require clinical trials. But one of the things that um, overall... The endocannabinoid system is a homeostatic re regulator of physiology. In other words, it keeps things in balance. If a system is overactive, it brings it down into the normal range. If it's underactive, it brings it up into the normal range. So a lot of this has to do with protective influences. Um, and uh, one of the things that CBD does is inhibit the breakdown of anandamide. Uh, one of the endogenous cannabinoids. And so over time, cannabidiol may well increase the gain of the endocannabinoid system and offer protective effects 
uh, particularly against these sort of immunological battles uh, that people go through after a severe um, COVID infection. Uh, so that's, that's a maybe. Um, and again, the last thing I would want is uh, to say that none of this has any application mm. or future viability. I just think that a lot more research needs to be done. Um, and I would point out that, um, yeah, it's really possible that compounds from cannabis or other natural products are going to turn out to be part of the answer here. Um, but it is all too soon. <laughs> right, right. And I know sort of just talking about cannabis as, as regulating your body's homeostasis. And one of the things is that depending on the patient's situation, that cannabis can be an immune booster or it can be an immune reducer. Um, and one of the, the preprint studies that came out just this month was talking about CBD being used to potentially prime components of the innate immune system, increasing readiness to respond to viral infection. So um, is there some potential there as well? Uh, perhaps, um, you know, I'd say this about preprints. Uh, first, I'm again it. Um, you know, the, in the past, you had to submit your uh, article for review in a journal. It went through peer review and then hopefully was published. Now, there has developed this tendency to put things online uh, and they get a lot of press coverage before they've been through peer review at all. Um, sometimes they never even make it. Um, so uh, I think it is a situation that uh, is fraught with pitfalls. Um, you know, an earlier study in relation to CBD and, um, and SARS-CoV-2 was the Kovalchuk study. Um, this was the idea that um, CBD was going to interfere with uh, binding to the uh, spike protein of COVID uh, that where it binds um, uh, to the ACE2 um, receptor. The problem with that study was that uh, they looked at different cannabis extracts, different levels of CBD, and there was no dose response effect. In other words, some were better than others, but it really didn't relate to the concentration of CBD. Um, and, um, you know, again, there might be something there, but it equally could be the case that it was another component of the extracts that was really uh, responsible. Um, so, uh, again, it uh, really it is absolutely essential that people look at this very skeptically with a proverbial jaundiced eye um, to try and find out what the bottom line truth of the matter is. Yeah. And that's a great point you make about preprints, right? Is that, as you said, they haven't gone through peer review. They haven't gone to the same scrutiny as something that's published in a, in a true journal. And uh, I think that's some, a good thing to keep in mind as people are looking into this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've taken a stand that I wouldn't uh, do preprints um, on um, research that we've done, even when we think it's really exciting and we'd like to get the word out. Um, but it's uh, the internet age. And um, again, what I really don't like is that these things get publicized and misinterpreted 
um, because of this exposure without the proper degree of initial scrutiny. Right. It is a double-edged sword, though, right? Because this being an, an ongoing pandemic and there's really a, a need for information so that people can um, can act appropriately, that waiting for to go through the full peer review process might not be prudent always. Perhaps. However, <laughs> it is our best defense against uh, junk science. That's true. That's true. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult spot. So as we're sort of getting to the end here, I did want to sort of bring up the, the question of, is there a potential that cannabis use could actually be detrimental to someone's experience with COVID? Could actually, you know, as we said, cannabis can regulate your immune system in either way. Could it be that cannabis could actually reduce your immune response and make you more vulnerable to COVID infection? Uh, maybe. I mean, the main danger would relate to smoking and um, the damage to the lung tissue. It is simply inarguable. Um, the issue of whether smoking's good for the, the lungs. Um, it's true that uh, smoking cannabis does not lead to lung cancer epidemiologically. However, it is absolutely clear that it does lead to irritation, cough, and phlegm, uh, greater susceptibility to upper respiratory infections, and perhaps even a greater susceptibility uh, to COVID. Um, however, this would not relate to um, immunological damage. Um, mm. The dosing of THC, for example, that immun is immunosuppressant is very high. Uh, previously estimated at 50 to 100 times the psychoactive dose. Um, so yes, various cannabis components can be immunomodulatory, uh, but you know CB2 activity may be helpful. Um, you know, it's again, it depends on what's in it and how it's administered. Smoking, not good uh, for the lungs and certainly would be something to avoid at this juncture. Uh, less of an issue with vaporization. Obviously, oral administration is going to be safer with any kind of, of lung issue. Um, so on the one hand, yeah, um, people should avoid smoking um, in general, uh, anything. Um, and uh, But beyond that, it's unlikely that use of uh, cannabis-based medicines is going to cause harm in this instance. Bigger question is, can it uh, help in any respect? And the answer right now is maybe, but it's got to be proven. Right. And, you know, when you mentioned that the, the amount of THC to kind of be immunosuppressive is, is really high, it seems like this is sort of a common refrain throughout the conversation here is that the dose is really what might be the limiting factor here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I think I think we covered most of the studies that um, that I had pulled out for us to discuss. Is there anything that that you had that that we missed? Well, no. I mean, I would just advise people to, um, you know, if you read something about one of these studies and aren't sure, try to talk to somebody that uh, might be a little more familiar. Um, be skeptical. 
And uh, good advice would be wait until um, higher authorities um, say what seems to be helpful and what's not. And that's a moving target. We've got a situation now um, with uh, some of the antibody treatments uh, right. that used right. to help don't work on Omicron. Um, but there's one left that does. And now there's some oral agents that work. Um, you know, keep up with what the CDC and FDA might be saying now, not what they were saying three months ago, because everything is in a state of flux. Yeah, absolutely. It's always changing. And it's funny you said that about the monoclonal antibodies, because that just the alert just came up on my phone before I came in here to talk to you. So, um, yeah, it's ever changing. You bet. All right, Ethan. Well, thanks again for coming on and, and talking with us. I'm going to put links to all these studies in the notes so people can read up on it. Is um, I guess one final thing, if you want to share any websites or social media or ways people can keep up with the work that you're doing, please plug away. Okay. Well, uh, you know, our, our company is Credo Science, and that's Credo, C-R-E-D-O dash science.com. You can see what we're up to there. Um, on the news front, we just last week um, released uh, a diagnostic screening test for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Information on that can be found on what is CHS. That's what dash is dash chs.com. Uh, there's a lot of useful information and links there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. We've had... Alice Moon on the podcast before talking about uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So it's great that we're we're getting to a point where we can start determining what's what's causing that because that seems to be quite the issue. Well, we think we have an answer in genetic susceptibility. Basically, we showed uh, five genes that were statistically significantly different in CHS patients as compared to patients who used high amounts of cannabis but didn't have CHS. Um, so we believe that uh, there are some underlying susceptibilities, and uh, this is, again, worth exploring further. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again, Ethan, and I look forward to seeing you out in Pasadena for CanMed 2022. I, we're going to get there. We're going to do it this year. We hope so. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Ethan Rousseau. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics and studies that we discussed. And thanks again to this episode sponsor, Project CBD. Our next episode will drop February 16th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out the CanMed archive and join the CanMed community Facebook group to stay connected with us. Of course, you can also stay in touch with us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Just search for CanMed Events. Sign up for email alerts on canmedevents.com to stay up to date with all the latest news. And please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Doing so helps us reach more listeners. I do sincerely hope to see all of you out in Pasadena this spring, but until then, stay safe, stay healthy, 
and please join us for the next CanBed Coffee Talk.